The only uh, the only announcements that I have is just a reminder on the boxes for Jim Myers Ministry, and those are uh, information about that's out in the fellowship hall, and also we have sign-up sheets. So just check or write down your information: cell phone, home phone, email address, so that we can contact you if there's uh, any reason that we have to change anything or uh, prayer alerts, things of that nature, or if for some reason we have uh, inclement weather and need to cancel, then you can be informed and not drive in the in the rain or something. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word, focus and concentrate this evening, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Now, Father, we're so grateful that we can come before you this evening. We're thankful for those who are here for prayer meeting and the opportunity to gather together as believers to pray for the needs of this church and for those who are uh, sick, those uh, and other ministries and the uh, various different requests that are come into this congregation. And Father, we especially remember those in this congregation who are in uh, serious health, uh, serious problems with their health, especially Jim Burney, and we continue to pray for him and his recovery. Father, we're thankful we can come together to fellowship around the teaching of your word, to be strengthened and encouraged by the truth of your word, and that you will use that in our sanctification. And we pray that tonight as we study, you can help us to think through what we're reading and what we're uh, studying, that we might come to a greater understanding of this remarkable prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Isaiah 53 because this is the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading in Acts chapter 8 when Philip comes alongside, initially instructed by an angel to go uh, along the the road to Gaza from Jerusalem and then led by the Holy Spirit to uh, specifically focus on this Ethiopian and his chariot and comes alongside, overhears the Ethiopian reading out loud from Isaiah's scroll, reading from Isaiah 53, and begins to ask him um, uh, if he understands what he's reading. And in uh, Acts 8.34, the uh, eunuch said, well, who is this Isaiah talking about? Is he talking about himself or somebody else? That's That's the question. And to understand that answer, of course, Philip is going to explain that this is of Jesus, but he would have done more than simply address that, he would have gone through the details of the passage. 
We've looked at the issue that's initially raised in the question on the identity of the servant. And even today, there are those who take these same options. They get um, they some think that this is related to the nation Israel. Others think that it's related to a prophet. But for most Christians, now liberal Christians take a non-Messianic view, just as uh, Jews do today, modern Jews. But if you go back in the history of Judaism up until approximately 1,000 A.D., uh, the dominant view was it was the, the Messiah. Now, they did not, they tried to come up with other ways of interpreting so it wouldn't look like it was applying to Jesus because there were so many Jews during the Middle Ages and earlier that when they read through Isaiah 53, they would convert. It is a powerful, powerful uh, passage and prophecy related to the Messiah. And it's, and I've gone through a lot of different material as I've been studying this over the last few weeks to try to understand the various uh, arguments that are suggested to try to show that this is not related to an individual or it's not messianic. And frankly, I don't know how anybody can do it when you are going to stick to the meaning of the words and the grammar of the passage. It is... um, it just doesn't work, and I'll be pointing out some of those, some of the reasons for that this evening. So we've seen the organization, <clears throat> fifty-two thirteen through fifteen, really presents the introduction. It, it, this is the what's called the fourth servant song. Although this idea that these four servant songs are they're not really psalms, but they do focus on uh, the the issue of the servant, and they are in some ways descriptive praise and or thanksgiving. And so this is the fourth one in this section of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 begins with an, the introduction. God is speaking at the close. In 53, 10 to 12, God is speaking again. And the core message, which is sort of contained within this divine report, you have three sections uh, where we have a focus on the servant as nourished by God but rejected by man and how he is submitted to the plan of the Father and 53, 1 through 3. And then we see the focal point of the whole section in terms of this chiasm in 53, 4 through 6, that this is the centerpiece. There's the X, the Greek letter chi or key is an X. And so this is, uh, uh, the, the chiasm is a, or chiasm is a, a literary device where you, uh, mirror or uh, repeat your key ideas in a pattern of A, B, C, B, A, where C or the centerpiece is your, your most significant point. So the most significant point has to do with the substitutionary, the penal substitutionary death of this sacrifice of the servant in Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. We'll get into most of that, I think, this evening. And then in um, the next section, 53, 7 through 9, once again deals with his character and then the exaltation of the servant. And as I pointed out last time, this passage is really about the exaltation of the, ser- of, of the servant. It is not about the suffering. That's secondary. The exaltation is because he has suffered. But if you look at these verses and read through it, 
All of the verses that relate to the suffering and all the verbs that are used in relation to the suffering are past tense verbs, whereas the verbs related to his future glorification and exaltation are future tense. So whoever is speaking and giving this this report, they're looking back on something that has happened with a view to what it is going to eventuate in, what it is going to result in, that is the exaltation of the servant. And as I pointed out last time, when we look at Isaiah chapter uh, 52, uh, verse 13, where God is speaking, says, Behold, my servant shall deal successfully, would be the best translation of that verb, not prudently as you have in the New King James, or in some passages wisely, it is the result of acting wisely that is bringing about success in his mission and that he will then be exalted and extolled and very high. There's a piling up of verbs there related to his glorification because the human language just reaches a certain limit when you can't say anything more. So you, you just don't have the words to describe the ultimate exaltation of the servant here. And so these verbs are piled up. And as I pointed out last time, uh, two of these verbs, the verbs that are translated be exalted and very high, are verbs that are also used and words that are also used to describe the throne of God. So there is this implied uh, statement here of the deity of, of the servant because these verbs do not apply to human beings. They are y- restricted in the scriptures uh, to God and to the, to the throne of God. So this whole passage is really related to the exaltation of the of, of the Messiah, the servant, and because of what he does uh, in his obedience to the Lord. So we come to the beginning of this, the core section here, verses one through nine, and the first, and it's really broken down into uh, about uh, three sections: one through three, four through six, and. Uh, five through nine, and we'll go work through each one. It begins with someone asking two rhetorical questions. Who's, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. That's just a more antiquated way of saying beauty. We'll see some interesting things there connected back with what we talked about Sunday morning in terms of the beauty of God. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So this section focuses on sort of an introduction to who the servant is and his uh, background, why he has, who he is in terms of his relationship with God and his relationship with this group of people, the we, the our, whoever is speaking, and the fact that they failed to recognize him, they failed to uh, see who he was. Now, as I pointed out earlier, uh, there are those who give this passage a non-Messianic interpretation. 
And that's exactly the problem that you see with those who are speaking here in the, in the first, uh, first section. They're saying, who's believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, there, these rhetorical questions are bringing up the fact that there's a, only a limited number of people who've responded to their, their report and who have understood how God has revealed himself with the, with the uh, servant. And so there's this limited response to, to the message. And the reason why is because they didn't identify who he was. They rejected his, his appearance. And this is um, exactly what happened in the first century when Jesus appears. He is rejected because he didn't fit the expectation of the religious uh, leaders in Israel. They expected uh, a Messiah who would come, who would give, the, who would be a glorified Messiah. They forgot about the suffering part. They, they expected a glorified Messiah and a Messiah who would bring them victory over the empire of Rome. They were looking for a political uh, figure. They were looking for a military figure. They were not looking for one who would come and, and who would suffer. And this is, uh, this is still a problem, especially in the Jewish community, but with many uh, many Christians is that are not Christians, but many people who reject the gospel is because they they don't want to accept this view of a Messiah. They have a, a, another agenda. So, just a couple of things about the problems with the uh, non-messianic view in terms of the context. What is actually being said in this passage? First of all, a non-messianic view. The idea that, that the Messiah here or the individual here, the servant here is either identified as a prophet or as a, uh, or as the nation itself, uh, it, it looks at the fact that this servant does suffer, but their view is that no matter whether it's, it's, uh, Isaiah, another prophet or the people, they think that the servant is suffering with the people rather than for the people in the sense of a substitution. So this the servant is just one among them who suffers along with the rest of the uh, Jewish people. But this contradicts the whole, the broad context of Isaiah 53. We have to remember that from Isaiah chapter 40 to the end of Isaiah chapter 66, there's a huge shift that takes place in the theme of, of Isaiah. This is why uh, there are those uh, usually of a liberal persuasion in terms of their view of the authority and origin of the text who believe that this second half of Isaiah was written by somebody else. They, they refer to first Isaiah and a deutero Isaiah or a second Isaiah. And they, their argument is basically, well, it's a different theme, a different topic, different vocabulary, things like that. But But I always found arguments like that to be somewhat... Uh, lacking because different writers will write many times on many different subjects, and depending on the subject uh, about which they're writing, they will use different words, different vocabulary, and and different things. That doesn't mean it's a different writer. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah is is prophesying the future and warning of the future judgment on the uh, on, on on Judah, on the kingdom of Judah that they will be destroyed specifically by the Babylonians. And along with that, there are also various chapters and various announcements about God's judgment on these various nations that God uses to bring judgment upon 
uh, Israel and upon Judah. But in the once he brings that to a close, he doesn't end on a down note. He then focuses on the future hope that God has not forgotten Israel. There is a God is going to be true to His promise, and there will be an ultimate redemption for the nation, for the people, and the promises of the kingdom will eventually be fulfilled. And that's the thrust of Isaiah chapter forty through the end of Isaiah. And in this section of Isaiah, Isaiah forty-nine chapters forty-nine through fifty-two, uh, twelve. The focus is on a future salvation for Israel, that God is going to provide a future deliverer, and there will be a deliverance. And then if you look to the chapters following chapter 53, God is then inviting Israel to participate in this salvation. So there's a promise at the in those first chapters of 49 to 52 that there will be a future salvation. And then after chapter 53, God is inviting them to participate in this salvation. But in Isaiah chapter 53, we see a hinge chapter because it's this chapter that tells us what that salvation is, how it is accomplished for for Israel. And so chapter 53 is the link between the the two and the transition from the announcement about a future deliverer and the uh, next chapters, which view that as having already been accomplished. The second aspect of this, which is foundational to this whole section and and just destroys any of the other arguments for a corporate Messiah being uh, of Israel or or it being the prophet, is that the the chapter clearly focuses on the fact that the servant, whoever he is, A, is righteous, and B, pays the penalty for sin, not temporal punishment, but the eternal punishment for sin. We read in verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, uh, pierced. That is, the, the word there is not just wounded, but it has the idea of a fatal, a fatal piercing, a fatal wound. He was bruised, and actually the term there in, in the Hebrew indicates a massive crushing, a pulverizing of a person, so it also implies death. He was bruised for our iniquity, so the the focal point of this is going to be on his payment for sin, and the result of that, that there is a complete healing or deliverance from this sin. In the last part of chapter 5, by his stripes we are healed, and then we get down to verse um, verse 11, that by his knowledge or on the basis of knowledge of him, uh, my righteous servant shall justify many. Again, terminology that is related to an eternal deliverance or eternal salvation. That Those verses alone and those ideas alone just wipe out the idea that the servant is a, a another prophet or the servant is the uh, corporate body of Israel. I'll point out some other things as we go through this. Uh, Isaiah 53, verse 4, when we get into that transition into the Focal point of the of the text itself on the substitution uh, begins with a word that we'll see. It's translated surely. Some I think say however. It's a contrast, and so the contrast is between the attitude of rejection by the people, whoever the we are, uh, in in the first uh, three verses, to the the work that is done by the servant 
and bearing our grief, carrying our sorrows, things of that nature. And those terms, those terms that we find in verse 4, surely uh, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Those two terms, and we'll look at those in, in detail, those two terms come right out of the context of uh, Numbers uh, chapter uh, 16, or excuse me, Leviticus chapter 16, where we're dealing with the Day of Atonement. So this is clearly language that is based on an understanding of the whole ritual of the Day of Atonement as well as other uh, sacrifice and offering passages in in Leviticus. So it begins with these two rhetorical questions to pull our attention to the fact that, that there's a group of people speaking who are delivering a message but that message is not getting a receptive response. So they ask, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So they're using this the, the, the pronoun our, which is a first-person plural pronoun, and as we look at the, I'm going to go back to these verses, we look at this, um, when, we come to, when we look at the first verse, the last line in... Verse 2, there's no beauty that we should desire him, or actually it starts here, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Uh, he's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we hid our faces, and we did not esteem him. So who do these plural pronouns describe here? And there are a couple of options that have been uh been set forth, and you may hear somebody say them. One is that it refers to the Gentile kings mentioned in the last verse of chapter 52. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what he had not, uh, for what had not been told them they shall see. But see, in the, in the context, there's a shift that takes place when you go to verse one, who has believed our report, and it's, it's not talking about those kings. It doesn't fit within the context. The other suggestion is that this is the prophet, and that's usually by those who want to identify the servant as either the prophet or the people. And then uh, the, the third view that's put forth there is that this is uh, the nation uh, of Israel as a whole. And uh, as part of that would be a future believing remnant of Israel, which I think is the answer. The only thing that can that fits this this. Uh, is that we're, this is a retrospective look now from some future generation that looks back on what happened to the servant. And, and they, are, they have realized who the servant is and realized what happened in their rejection of, 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 the, uh, of the servant. And so there is an element of confession here in this, in this passage that they had... Uh, failed completely to recognize the servant based on uh, prophetic passages and had treated him with no respect and treated him and rejected him and despised him and then there's a they but they've come to realize who he was and what he did that's what happens when we shift into verse uh, verse four so when we answer the question who is speaking here who's the we who's the hour the we and the hour are, are sort of general uh, pronouns, but they are—they uh, specifically refer to a future generation, a Jewish remnant, who's come to realize the identity of the Messiah, 
and what they had done in rejecting him uh, in the past. And this is one of those passages that I, I think it's clear from other uh, passages in Scripture that this, that this supports this. Paul, in fact, quotes from Isaiah 53.1 from this very, very initial question, who's believed our report, in Romans chapter 10, verse 16. There, he, there Paul writes, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. And remember, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are focusing on the question, well, has God completely rejected the Jews? And so this is Paul's, uh, Paul's explanation of God's plan for Israel, that they rejected the Messiah, but God did not reject them. The promises and the covenants still belong to Israel, and that there is a small remnant that is of Jews that have accepted the Messiah, but most of them have not. So that's where he is headed in Romans chapter 10, where he says, but they, referring to the Jewish people, they have not all obeyed the gospel. And he sees this as a fulfillment of this, this line from Isaiah 53.1, the Lord who has believed our report. And uh, then in um, <clears throat> Isaiah 53, verse 8, uh, it's declared that he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation for he was cut off from the land of the living. And then the last line, for the transgressions of my people. So God is speaking there. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And so that verse indicates that my people is a different group than the, um, uh, than the servant. It's distinct from the servant. And the my people are Israel. In fact, uh, one of the uh, 19th century's uh, great uh, scholars related to the Hebrew Old Testament, Franz Delich, who wrote a commentary set with um, uh, <clears throat> Kyle, uh, usually referred to simply as the Kyle and Delich commentary on the Old Testament, has sta- stated that whenever, and I think he's right here, that whenever you find a we in the Old Testament in the midst of prophecy, it's always a reference to Israel that is speaking, sort of like you might have a chorus in, uh, in a Greek play, that, that whenever you go through a prophecy and it start, starts talking about we, that is always a reference to Israel. And um, also that the, the, the indication that the verbs here that all look uh, in the past to the suffering and death of the servant uh, indicates this contrast that they look back on what they did and there's this sense of of confession and repentance in the true sense of the word change that takes place over the course of this uh, of these nine verses one commentator presents it in an interesting image he says what's going on here so to speak is we seem to hear two disciples standing on the street corner in Jerusalem reviewing the things that happened on Good Friday, in the light of the better insight that came after Pentecost. Now you think about that. You've got two two Jewish Christian disciples sitting there after Pentecost, once they gain perspective and understand what has happened, and they suddenly realize all, all that has happened in terms of the arrest, the crucifixion, 
the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, now, now it's all beginning to make sense, whereas they didn't quite grasp all that on the other side when they were going into it. So this is what's, what's happening here is that you have this remnant ha- in the future realizes that um, Jesus is the Messiah, and they look back and they say, boy, we just really missed it. And not only did we miss it, but in our rejection, it brought about his death as well. So uh, this, this section contains uh, sort of a, a confession from the believing uh, Israelites that their uh, failure to know the Scriptures, failure to properly understand what they taught about the Messiah as needing to suffer before he would be glorified and before he would reign, and that because they missed that, and they rejected him and despised him. That led to his suffering and to his uh, to his death. But that, in turn, brought about the glories of their uh, of their salvation. Now, the first question is simply, who's believed our report? As they've come to understand this, they've reported on it. They they have a message. Who's who's believed our message now? That's what they're asking. The second question expands on that a little bit, and they say, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, the phrase arm of the Lord is one that is ultimately associated with his with his power, with his omnipotence. We know that the phrase, the arm of the Lord, is what's called an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism means that a uh, some aspect of the human physical form is attributed to God, even though God, we know God is, a, God is spirit, and he doesn't have a body like ours, certain attributes of a human body, which God doesn't possess, are assigned to him as a means of communicating something uh, to human beings as a, as an, on the basis of analogy. So when you have phrases like the hand of God, the arm of God, that emphasizes strength and power. You have phrases like the eyes of God going, looking uh, back and forth throughout the earth. That indicates his, his knowledge of what is going on. But arm and hand focus on his omnipotence, and almost always they're focusing on his power, his omnipotence, his ability to deliver people from uh, calamity, especially deliverance from, from sin. So the question here is, to whom uh, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the revelation of the gospel message has been really revealed to only a few in the sense that they've responded to it. They, they've rejected it. And so the emphasis in these two questions is the message has gone out uh, to the Jewish people, but there has not been much of a response. They have mostly rejected it, even though thousands upon thousands became Christians during the first century. Um, this... Um, uh, ultimately, the gospel was rejected by the leaders, uh, the political leaders, the religious leaders, and by the majority uh, of the of the Jewish people. So the first question emphasizes this this rejection that has taken place. Then in verse two, there's going to be an explanation. Now, whenever we see a passage begin with four. Usually this is either going to be uh, some sort of explanation or in some cases it's developing the cause for something. And here it's going to be further explanation and expansion on on the 
the reason for the rejection. And in the first part of this verse, uh, the emphasis is on the, the servant's relationship to God. And the second part is his rejection by man. How the, how the first part, how God loved the servant and took care of and nourished and nurtured the servant. And the second part focuses on how, in contrast, uh, the, the Jews rejected him. And overall, mankind rejected him. Verse 2 says that he shall grow up before him. Now, who is, we have two uses of the third person singular pronoun for he shall grow up before him. Who's the first he? Who do you think that, that describes? In context, it describes the servant. As the, God is speaking back in 52.13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted. So he, in terms of the nominative case here, generally is referred to back to the servant. He shall grow up. So this implies that the servant is going to grow physically. There's going to be uh, a process of physical growth and maturation. He's not going to show up already uh, mature. He will Grow up before him. So this use of him indicates the him is a different person than the he. And the him would be the speaker in verses 12 to 15 identified as, as Yahweh, who we call God the Father. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Now this is where it starts tying some imagery together from various other passages uh, in the Old Testament related to the Messiah. The phrase uh, uh, tender plant is from the Hebrew word yonach, which means a suckling, a tender plant, a tender shoot, a, a young plant. It's a uh, horticultural term. It's not talking about a, uh, some translators uh, translate this as a suckling. It's not talking about a nursing child. It's talking about a, a small shoot coming up out of dry ground. Now, dry ground is what? If you have a garden, how much is going to come up through your dry ground? Well, if it's my garden, it's weeds. They don't seem to need water. But barren, it's barren soil out of something that is not expected to produce growth. This growth is going to uh, uh, develop and strengthen. So the image is of this, uh, of a trunk of a tree or something like that, which fits with other images of this idea of a root. In Isaiah 11, 1, have the uh, prophecy that there shall come forth a rod or a branch uh, from the stem of Jesse. The picture is of a the trunk of a tree, and the tree's been cut down. Now, the root is Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king of Israel. And the Davidic line was viewed as having been cut down when uh, the kingdom of Judah was defeated by, uh, by the Babylonians. And even though you still could designate and, and identify some descendants of David, there was never a restoration of the monarchy in, in Judah or in Israel, there never was a restoration of the Davidic monarchy. And so you have this imagery of the line of David having been cut down. So you now have just a barren stump in the ground. 
But all of a sudden, something new, a new growth, uh, a new um, uh, branch is going to grow out of those roots and develop into something new. That's the image of the Messiah, and that he will come and restore the Davidic monarchy. That same imagery is found in Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. And in this, in this context, the cedars represents, uh, represents Israel and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its, of its young twigs, a tender one. There's this, there's our, um, word here, uh, Yanak for a tender shoot. It's young twigs, a tender one, and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. So the imagery there is taking one that's coming out of what has already existed, the lineage of David, putting it on a high mountain. Mountain uh, often indicated, uh, it indicated elevation and power. And uh, so this is the same imagery here related to the Messiah, that God is the one who would establish it, bring about his growth. So we're told that he will grow up, that is, the servant will grow up before him as a tender plant, and this language indicates uh, a messianic connection. And as a root, that term again, just like we had with um, uh, Isaiah uh, 11.1, a branch will grow out of his roots, uh, as a root out of dry ground. And then there's a shift there. So, so we see God working to nourish and to bring about the, the Messiah to, to restore the lineage of David. And then there's a contrast. And the contrast is going to focus on the fact that the Messiah doesn't look like what they expected him to look like. He didn't fit their model, their expectation. Because when they focused on the fact that the Messiah was a son of David and would reestablish the monarchy, they're thinking in terms of all of the cultural trappings that went with the king, all of the glories that went with the king, the power, the army, defeating the enemies of Israel. They focused on all of those aspects rather than the uh, uh, negative aspects. Now, think with me a little bit about David. When David is initially anointed by Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 17, he is just a young teenager, probably, I would say, 16, 17 years of age, something like that. He's not the little boy that is often presented in children's stories about, uh, about David and Goliath because he, he, when, he, when he's called by Saul, when he goes to Saul, rather, to... Uh, volunteer to fight Goliath, and here David is probably about 5'5 five, five or 5'6. Five, He's not very, very big. And how do we know that? Well, we've discovered numerous graves in Israel and archaeological sites where there are skeletons, and you can measure the, the skeletons and see what the average uh, height was at that time, just like at the uh, time of the American War for Independence, people like George Washington, who was about 6'3 or 6'4, were uh, and later on, just a generation later, Sam Houston was about the same size. They, they were, they were aberrations. The, the, the norm, you walk through some of those old houses in New England, and the, you know, the door frame usually hits me about, about eye level, because they were very, they were short due to nutrition and many other factors. So the same thing was true with Israel. David was probably not very large. And uh, by contrast, Saul was specifically identified as being 
a head taller than anyone else. But nothing like that is said about uh, about David. In fact, Saul's armor didn't really fit him, so he was he was much smaller. So he's going to go out and he's going to fight uh, fight uh, uh, fight Goliath, and. Uh, then after that, Saul becomes very jealous of him because of all of his victories and God's blessings for him. And for about the next 10 or 15 years, David is having to run from Saul because Saul is persecuting him. But David's already been anointed king, and people know that he's been anointed king. But he went through a period of rejection and where he was being persecuted and he was running from Saul before God eventually elevated him to the position of the kingship. And that is a picture of the future Messiah, the son of David, is that he would go through a period of rejection, and a peer, even though he was already identified as the king of the Jews, he would go through a period of rejection, go through a period of persecution. The church, the body of Christ, is in that period like David and uh, his mighty men during the period when they're hiding out in the wilderness and in Gedi and other places. And then ultimately uh, David was raised to the, to the kingship when Saul took his life there at the end of 1 Samuel. And then David became the king. So we see that same pattern in Jesus, suffering and then glorification. But... By the first century in Israel, they had forgotten about the suffering aspect of the Messiah, which is very clear here, and they were just focusing on the glory. So the, 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 when Jesus came, when he, he wasn't recognized as such because he didn't come. Uh, he came from a very small village of Nazareth that, uh, according to uh, archaeologists and scholars, probably didn't have a population of more than 100, 150 people maximum. And it was very small. It had a poor, poor reputation so that when Jesus shows up, uh, later on, uh, I think Nathaniel says, well, what good can come out of, out of Nazareth? Nazareth had a pretty negative, uh, uh, pretty negative reputation. So nobody really thought that anything good can come out of Nazareth and that a Nazarene was just a backward person. In fact, in, in Judea, they had a negative view of the Galileans. They said, well, these Galileans don't know how to speak other languages. They're not very uh, cosmopolitan. They're not well-educated. Uh, so there was a neg- negative view there. And so what we see here isn't a statement that Jesus is unattractive, but it's clearly a statement that he... He, you know, he did not have the kind of physical presence one would expect of a savior of the world from a human viewpoint perspective. You, you wouldn't look at Jesus and say he looks like a savior. He looks like a, like a king. He looks so Davidic. None of that is there. He just looked like an average Jew, Jewish male. And there was nothing physically that drew them. So they, they, uh, because there wasn't anything in his background growing up, rather, uh, I don't think he was poor. Uh, as we, those who have gone to Israel with me, we've gone to a town about four miles from Nazareth called Sephoris. Uh, Sephoris was discovered back in the, I believe, back in the 80s and excavated, and it was a huge city, and it was, a, it was developed from about uh, 84 by uh, Herod Agrippa and designated to be the the uh, capital of Galilee, and it was a gorgeous city. But this was all built during the time that Jesus was growing up. 
And so if your father's a carpenter, and a carpenter there was that, that term that's used in the Greek does, isn't limited to a, um, it's not limited to a woodworker. It really refers to a construction engineer, a builder, somebody who worked with stone, with wood, with whatever. And so as this massive Roman city is being constructed four miles from Nazareth, where, where do you think Joseph would go to get work? He would go over to do Sephoris. And so as Jesus grew up and, and was a, um, uh, would go with his father at, <clears throat> in order to work, uh, he would be, he was exposed to Greco-Roman culture, uh, in Sephoris. And so I think that, that, uh, it was a good, solid, working class family. They, they, uh, uh, were not poor, but they weren't, but nobody was rich and or wealthy are well to do in you know modern american sense but they were they were well off they weren't they weren't hurting but this wasn't the background that that people expected and so <clears throat> usually two words here the first he has no form which indicated his uh just his external appearance that this did not fit what uh what they expected and then the other word that's used here that i've underlined comeliness is this Hebrew word, which we'll get into a little more, it's one of several words in the Hebrew used to, uh, used to express the beauty of God, the glory of God, the splendor of God, and that is how it's often translated in the Psalms when it relates, uh, relates to God. As I point out here, it's used 29 times in the Old Testament, 16 times in the Psalms. And it relates to the splendor and glory of God, and that's how it's used in synonymous parallelism in the Psalms. So they say he has no, had no uh, form or splendor. They're looking for a, a, a king who is magnificent, and there's nothing like that uh, about Jesus. And then, then they say, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And this is the Hebrew word, uh, Mara'e, which indicates uh, appearance or sight. It's from the root ra'ah, which means to see. And so it had to do with someone's, uh, it's translated visage back in verse 14, where we read his visage was marred more than any man. It is his appearance. And sometimes it's translated as, as beauty. And it's so <clears throat> the idea here is that there was nothing physically about Jesus that set him apart as the uh, glorious Messiah. There's nothing about this servant that this prophecy is talking about that's going to set him apart. You're not going to look at him and be able to discern by appearance who he is and that he is the one who fulfills, uh, fulfills this prophecy. So there's, there's this rejection. And so verse 3 talks about the fact that as a confession of their rejection of uh, of the servant. He's um, in verse 2, and then in verse 3, it continues to express this and says, first of all, that he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, that's, we frequently sing the hymn, uh, I believe it's also an Isaac Watts hymn, Man of Sorrows. And that's where what this is based on, that hymn is based on a meditation on Isaiah chapter 53. So he's despised and rejected by men. This first verb that is translated uh, despised is the verb uh, vazeh, which here it's used in a passive sense. Uh, he is despised. Um, 
and it also means to reject, to disdain, or to show contempt for someone. Interestingly, this is the same word that is used of describing Esau's rejection of his birthright. He showed contempt for his birthright. He rejected it. He had disdain for it. And so this is the same word. It's also the word used to describe how what Goliath thought about this little pipsqueak David that came out to him. He con- had contempt for him. He rejected him. He had uh, uh, disdain for him, no respect for him whatsoever. And so this is how uh, the, the writers here, those who are uh, saying this, described their reaction to the servant. They despised him. They showed contempt for him. He was not worthy of any respect whatsoever, and so they completely rejected him and uh, belittled him. And this is exactly what we see in fulfillment in Jesus, is that he was rejected by uh, the people that were the religious leaders and the uh, political leaders of his day, and um, that he didn't fit what people thought the Messiah would be as this military uh, military uh, deliverer. And then we have another um, another phrase, which I didn't get in here on a line item. Um, uh, here's another verse, Isaiah 49, 7, the Redeemer of Israel, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him, so he's speaking to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors. So that is another description of, uh, of the Messiah as one who's rejected and despised by the nation. So how could the servant be the nation? How can you interpret the, 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 the servant of God as being equivalent to the Israelites, as being equivalent to the people of Israel, the Jewish people? It doesn't fit because the, the servant is the one who is despised and rejected by the nation. Uh, by the people. He's despised, he's rejected by men, um, and he is called uh, a a man of sorrows. Now, this word for sorrows is the word ka'av, which means pain or anguish, and in the form uh, that it uses here, participial form, it has the idea of one who suffers. So these two phrases, the man of sorrows and being acquainted with grief, describe the suffering of the Messiah on the cross. This is not a description of his life. He was not a sad man. It's just, the, the word sorrows has this idea of sadness that comes across for us, but it really has the idea in the Hebrew of someone who is who is going through a tremendous amount of physical suffering and pain and anguish, which is what uh, Jesus went through on the cross. And then it says that he is acquainted with grief, acquainted with grief. And this is uh, the word here I have on the right, uh, holy, which indicates uh, it's often translated sickness or disease or illness. However, in uh, a number of passages, it's used to describe situations that are calamitous. It describes a, the act of a judgment uh, by God on someone. It's used that way in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, uh, verse 2. So these two words, he's a man really of, of anguish, and he is acquainted with, a, with calamity. And this describes what he is going through 
uh, upon the cross. And then again, it's, uh, they say he was despised. And that's the same word we had initially, the word vaza, which indicates his, that he is treated with contempt and utter and total rejection. He's despised. And then it says, we did not esteem him. And the word that's used to translate uh, esteem there is a word that means to, to account, to count. It's an accounting term. It has the idea of counting something as valuable. Something is worthwhile. So uh, they say he, we, we rejected him, we had contempt for him, and we did not think we did not count anything about him to be be of value. So they completely misidentify who the the servant is. That's what the prophecy says. He's going to show up, but he's not going to be identified. He's going to. There's the implication there. I think that he's human because he grows up. He's nurtured. He shall grow up before God as a tender plant, indicate that God is the one who nourishes him. Uh, Luke 2.42 says that Jesus uh, developed and grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with both God and man. So he had a normal human uh, growth period, and then there is this uh, complete and total uh, rejection. Now, verse 3 ends with this statement that he's despised and rejected. And now there's going to be a contrast. Notice how verse 4 begins. Surely he has borne our griefs. So there's this shift from the fact that he's totally rejected and despised to a positive affirmation of what he has, uh, what he has done. And this is, um, again, indicated by the, uh, the Hebrew there. But as we look at this, this, these next three verses, what I want you to identify here, and you can circle or underline the pronouns in your, in your own Bible. Look how it reads. Surely he has borne our griefs. Notice the contrast here. What I'm pointing out here is that this shows that some sort of substitutionary payment is, is at the very core of this section. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Notice the contrast between the the third person and the first person pronouns. Verse 5, but he is wounded for our transgressions. He is bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace is laid on him, and by his stripes we are healed. And then at the end of verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All is just a generic term that includes not only Jews, but everybody in the human race. Now, as I said at the beginning of our, when we first started looking at this verse, it begins with this Hebrew word, achen, which indicates surely or however. It's a, it's a contrast with what goes on before. It's a sharp contrast and it introduces a positive statement. So it shifts from the fact that we rejected him, we despised him, we had no reason to to accept him at all, but nevertheless, but in spite of our rejection is the idea here, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now this is in synonymous parallelism, so griefs and sorrows are parallel to one another, and these terms are terms that are used not specifically of sin, but as the consequences of sin. 
Now we're going to get into other words that relate to sin. In verse 5, we have the word transgression and iniquity, and there are other words that are used throughout this passage related to uh, to sin. And iniquity is used again in verse verse 6. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And so it's very clear that the, the penalty that's being paid here is a penalty related uh, related to sin. But just as we cl- close out tonight, the thing I want you to f- want to focus on in, in, here is these these verbs. He has borne our griefs. Now that's a poetic way that the King James translators use to to translate this. It's the Hebrew word nasa which indicates lifting, carrying, or taking something somewhere, but it is specifically used in day, the Day of Atonement passages related to uh, the payment for, for sin for the people and the bringing about of forgiveness. Now, remember, on the Day of Atonement, the, the high priest would come out and they would bring two, uh, two goats to him. And he would put his hands on the goats and recite the sins of the nation for the previous year. And they would take one goat that would be sacrificed, and that pictures the payment for the sin. That as uh, Scripture says, that there is no, without, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So that it wasn't that the, the animal could pay for the sin, but it's picturing the fact that eventually there has to be a death that would be able to pay for all sin. And so that one goat goes to be sacrificed, but the other goat, called the scapegoat, is then taken by uh, a trusted friend of the of the uh, high priest and is taken far away from Jerusalem, way out into the barren Judean uh, desert, uh, far enough away to where he can never find his way back because our sins don't come back on us. Uh, and he's taken far out into the wilderness where he is released, indicating that our sins are paid for and removed from us, as the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so that there's this complete removal of sin. So the, 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 the goat that pays for the sin, or the, the, the goat that goes out in the wilderness, is described in Leviticus 16.22, the goat shall bear, same word, nathah, the goat shall carry upon itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So this is language that speaks of the Day of Atonement of Yom Kippur. The second word that's used here is the word uh, for uh, he carried our sorrows. I didn't have that underlined, but carried our sorrows. is the Hebrew word saval, which indicates bearing a load for someone else. It, the, the very verb itself has a connotation of substitution. You're carrying a load for someone else. So he carries for someone else uh, sorrows. <clears throat> and this is his role. So starting with verse 4, we see this emphasis on a substitutionary uh, payment. And then as we get into the next verse, starting in verse 5, we're going to see that it brings in the idea of a penalty, that it's not just a substitutionary payment, but by the time we get to the second half of verse 5, the chastisement or the punishment related to our peace, that is peace with God, was upon him. So the punishment, so it becomes a penal 
substitutionary death. Now, another way that this has been spoken of in, in uh, not so much today, it's a little bit more of an antiquated term, but it's a vicarious penalty. Vicarious means substitutionary. So it, it is a penal, that means it's a punishment. It is a penal substitutionary death. Jesus could not have paid for our sins by just having a heart attack. He couldn't have, died, he couldn't have paid for our sins by, by just being run over in an accident or accidentally falling off of one of the numerous cliffs in Israel. It had to be a certain kind of death. It had to be a punishment to indi- indicate that what was going on in the spiritual realm was also a punishment. So we'll come back next time and uh, continue looking at this whole idea of a penal substitutionary death and how that is foundational to understanding Isaiah chapter 53. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to uh, see how marvelously this prophecy was fulfilled in, in detail in the death of Jesus Christ as he went to the cross and there he fulfilled the type of the of the, of the uh, sacrifices, the sacrificial animals on Yom Kippur. He paid the penalty for our sins that we might have forgiveness of sin and be uh, completely cleansed of all sin in your sight and that he would be the one who would just provide justification for us. And, Father, we pray that you would continue to help us to, as we study through this passage, to get a greater understanding of the work of our Lord and the remarkable prophecy that is here in Isaiah chapter 53. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.